Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. We all heard it as a child. And if you have young ones like I do, I bet you even said it to your child today. Quote, the answer is no. And the answer is no to Mr. Donald J. Trump. Here it is, the quote. This appeal requires us to consider whether the district court had jurisdiction to block the United States from using lawfully seized records in a criminal investigation. The answer is no. We have breaking news tonight in the federal criminal investigation of Donald Trump and the curious case of the missing 13,000 government records that were found squirreled away at the former president's beach club in Florida. Tonight, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has thrown out the special master that Trump fought for and who was put in place by a Trump-appointed judge. That judge, Eileen Cannon in Florida, took Trump's side and appointed a third-party arbiter, a referee, if you will, to sift through the thousands of government records, many of them classified, that the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago in August. The problem with appointing a special master here? The government argued that it hindered their ongoing criminal investigation. Essentially, they said, we need those documents. This is a matter of national security. And a lot of legal experts saw this whole special master gambit as the former president's strategy to slow walk the investigation, including, most likely, the Justice Department, which appealed the appointment of that special master. And tonight, tonight, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta has effectively said, Sorry, Mr. Former President, you are now out of luck. The judges said Trump's arguments as to why a special master was necessary were, quote, a sideshow that's actually in the filing. And they did not stop there. They said in no uncertain terms about Trump's arguments, quote, the government disagrees with each contention. Now, tonight's order is a per curiam ruling, which means it's attributed to all three judges on the panel. No single judge authored it. It's a showing of solidarity, and that is significant because those three judges, they were all nominated by Republican presidents. Two of them were nominated by Trump himself. And let me tell you, those judges did not hold back. Quote, in considering these arguments, we are faced with a choice. Apply our usual test, drastically expand the availability of equitable jurisdiction for every subject of a search warrant, or carve out an unprecedented exception in our law for former presidents. We chose the first option, so the case must be dismissed. It really doesn't get much simpler than that. There were three options. One was sane and the other two were insane. We chose the sane one, which shuts this whole thing down. The ruling continues. The law is clear. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. Either approach would be a radical reordering of our case law, limiting the federal court's involvement in criminal investigations. And both would violate bedrock separation of powers limitations. Accordingly, we agree with the government that the dismissal of the entire proceeding is required. Full stop. Now, With this evening's ruling, the Justice Department, theoretically, if Trump doesn't appeal this, the Justice Department can resume its criminal investigation with access to those thousands of declassified government records as soon as next week. 
But even having those documents held up by the special master process has not stopped the Justice Department and the newly appointed special counsel from continuing its investigation. The New York Times is reporting today that today's decision from the 11th Circuit comes on a busy and very important day for special counsel Jack Smith. The decision came on the same day that three close aides to Trump appeared before a grand jury in Washington that is investigating Mr. Trump's handling of the documents, according to two people familiar with the matter. Those aides included Dan Scavino, Trump's former social media guru, and William Russell and William Harrison, who worked for Trump when he was in the White House. In recent weeks, several witnesses connected to that investigation have appeared in front of a grand jury in federal district court in Washington. Now, NBC News has not confirmed that stopped the press's information. But if this reporting bears out, the special counsel in the Mar-a-Lago Trump documents case is ramping up on a day where Mr. Trump has once again lost in court. Joining us now is Charlie Savage, who is covering this story tonight for The New York Times, and Neil Katyal, former U.S. acting solicitor general during the Obama administration. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Neil, I'd love to start with you. I found this uh, <laughs> ruling from the 11th Circuit quite a doozy. That's not the unofficial legal term. How did you read it? Yeah, I mean, federal appeals judges generally talk in kind of very plain, understated language. This was not understated. This was these three judges tearing apart Donald Trump's legal arguments. And Donald Trump did get a good, lucky early break. He drew a judge initially over the summer, Judge Cannon, who seems inclined to entertain all sorts of wackadoodle arguments. But his luck ran out here, and he drew a panel that was incredibly conservative, Alex. I mean, these are three very, very conservative judges. But they basically said this is a terrible legal argument. And one quote that you didn't show that I want to share with our viewers is this. The court said toward the end that Trump's argument, quote, defies our nation's foundational principle that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth or rank. Essentially, what the court was saying is, Trump, you want some special privilege here just because you're the former president. You don't get that here. You're treated just like everyone else, and nobody else would get a special master for their criminal investigation after they stole a bunch of secret government documents. Neil, it, it's, it's an indictment of Trump's strategy, but it's also just an embarrassment for uh, Judge Cannon, is it not? I mean, this whole thing is effectively a rebuke to her contention that she can step in and make a ruling here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's about as much of a body slam as you could get. And I think one other ancillary effect, and I'm, I'm sure Charlie's been thinking about this as well, is what this does to Jack Smith's investigation. Because if you're the special counsel, you've now been handed this on a golden platter. You have three very conservative judges saying, essentially, your investigation's legitimate, you can go forward. Trump banked on the reverse. He had hoped that they would slow or stop or stymie or discredit this investigation. And all he got was 18 pages of, uh-uh, no way, this investigation's legitimate and it's going to go forward and investigate these very serious crimes. Yeah, the answer is no, Donald Trump. Charlie, to that end, to Neil's point, uh, what does this do to Jack Smith and the special counsel's timeline here? Well, certainly it, it takes the handcuffs off. He had already been freed by the 11th Circuit to use 
well, the, before he got there, but the people he's now supervising were free to use the 103 documents marked as classified in their investigation. Now there's no more fetters or there will be no more fetters when this seven day period elapses to using the other sort of 13,000 pages of stuff that is evidence about what this was being stored with, who was maybe had access to it and so forth that are all going to be adding up to the ultimate decision of whether to bring charges. I, I would say there's another element here that is uh, shouldn't be overlooked, which is one of the things Jack Smith is going to have to decide at some point if he does say he's going to move forward with asking grand jury to indict someone in this case, whether it's Trump or some of his aides, is where to bring those charges. Uh, the most obvious place to bring them is in Florida. That's where the documents were being held. That's where the uh, obstruction happened, if there was a chargeable obstruction here, even though the grand jury that whose subpoena was defied was based in D.C. And an issue with bringing the charges into Florida, however, is that Eileen Cannon could end up with this case under the rules down there. If some judge has already dealt with something and then there's a related matter that is filed, the one of the, either of the parties can file a motion to move that case to the judge who originally had it. The idea is to not have two different judges having to get up to speed and wasting judicial resources. Obviously, this Justice Department does not want a criminal case, if they bring one, to go before this judge. And so ordering this case dismissed at this point on such sweeping grounds, not letting her get to a new motion that the Trump people filed just a few days ago, trying to get the search warrant affidavit released without redactions, not letting her get more sort of hooks into the case, may also improve the chances that Jack Smith ultimately decides to bring charges, if he does, in Florida as opposed to in D.C. Oh, that's a very interesting twist in all of this, Neil. Do you have an opinion on, I mean, do you have an opinion on whether Judge Cannon may have seen the error of some of her ways? Because at points in all of this, she has reversed course rather quickly when effectively slapped back by other courts. I mean, do you, do you think she continues on her course uh, thus far charted of being a Trump defender? Or do you think that there's a, 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 a go ahead. When you ask Alex, has she seen the error of her own ways? I mean, I guess if she can read, she's got to be able to see the error of her own ways because 18 pages of just you are absolutely wrong start to finish. So um, I disagree with Charlie a little bit in the following sense. I think this case, if there is a criminal indictment, has always been in Washington, D.C. That's where the documents were stolen from. That's where the grand jury is sitting. And so I've always thought it was going to be there regardless. And I think the Justice Department is very, very wary of ever being seen as trying to shop for a certain judge. We've certainly seen a lot of forum shopping by other participants, but you don't see it at the Justice Department. It's one of the most kind of cardinal rules of the organization. The one kind of exception is if you do have someone who's truly acting lawlessly. And so, you know, I agree with Charlie that this is an additional fact that the department would consider, but I think it was going to be in D.C. through and through, no matter what, just given the, the nature of these charges and where the documents were stolen from. 
Charlie, let's talk a little bit about the timeline for a potential indictment, because there was some thinking that they would have to the Justice Department would have to wait until Judge Deary finished his review. If this does not go to appeals and if Deary is effectively taken off of this next Thursday, do we have an expectation of what the next step is? We know that there is a a parallel intelligence community review of the classified information. Do we know where that is? Do we have any sense of when this may be wrapping up? Well, everything was a little bit on hold, of course, because we were moving through the 60 days leading up to the election and because of this document review. And and by the way, it wasn't just until Judge Deary, the special master, finished his review. That was just going to be the end of part one of this process, because he was merely going to make a report and recommendations to Judge Cannon under her vision. And then she would start over and decide for herself and maybe have briefings and arguments along the way. The delays that her process could have pushed this case into went well beyond uh, the the timeline for Deary to wrap up his phase of just taking a first look at it. So this really does move things along in that respect. What we don't know is how much information they still don't know in terms of missing puzzle pieces at the top level. What was Trump saying to his aides at various points in time that would show his knowledge? To what extent did he uh, direct them not to turn over certain documents? Uh, is he able to say he just didn't know? They're going to still be less one. But the reason why these aides of his are uh, coming before the grand jury, and there's, I think, still many more of those interviews to be done. And just to continue the other conversation with Neil about whether it's obvious that D.C. would be the venue here, you know, you say the documents were stolen in D.C., but if Trump was still president before January 20th at noon, when those documents were put in boxes and taken out of the White House and shipped to Mar-a-Lago, he had every right to do that. And so it's it's the retention of them months later, a year later, when he's not the president, and he receives a subpoena for them, and he still doesn't give them back. It's the unauthorized retention of them, not the taking of them, that is the cleanest Espionage Act offense here. And that is not something that happened to D.C. That is something that happened in Florida. Well, I have one more question just in terms of the documents and and also where they are. There was some talk about documents being stored elsewhere. Do we have a sense that the Justice Department is looking at Bedminster or in Trump Tower? Had they sort of given up on finding the rest of what may be a horde of squirreled away (laughs) documents that belong to the government? Well, I have no true? confidence that they, I, I do not think that they think they have gotten all the documents. They've said as much in court filings and in, in court arguments that they, they're not confident they have everything. I think a search of Bedminster or Trump Tower is one of those overt steps that they were probably not going to do leading up to the midterm election because of the 60 day rule about not doing things that could, you know, influence politics close to an election. Uh, they also, though, would need probable cause to uh, get a search warrant, that there is something there, not just have vague suspicions. And so that could be another thing that they're still looking for uh, and asking questions about as they grill Trump's aides in a grand jury room. Anil, I just have one more quick question for you. Is this the end of the line for Trump appealing this? Are we done here, or do you think that this is going to end up at the Supreme Court? 
Uh, well, I mean, Trump will try because he always tries, Alex, to delay everything and then bring everything through. Um, but I think the Supreme Court will make short work of this very fast. And the, and the Justice Department should expedite decisions with the Supreme Court right away. I mean, this has been a terrible week for Donald Trump and the law, Alex. His tax returns, he unanimously lost that in the Supreme Court. So they were turned over to Congress. His former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was ordered to testify in front of a grand jury. And now Trump is watching his favorite judge in Florida, basically be told you're fired uh, by uh, this three-judge appellate court. So it's a bad, bad week. Yeah, The Apprentice, the judicial version. Charlie Savage, Washington correspondent from The New York Times, and Neil Katyal, former U.S. Acting Solicitor General. Thank you both for being here tonight, guys. Really appreciate it. Coming up this hour ahead of tomorrow's final day of early voting in Georgia's Senate runoff, Democrats have sent in the closer. But first, President Biden is hosting French President Emmanuel Macron at the White House tonight in his very first state dinner. That scene is in striking contrast to another recent dinner held by a former president, one that is continuing to raise questions about the relationship between Republicans and extremists. Anti-racist author and activist Ibram Kendi joins me after the break to discuss. Stay with us. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This evening, President Biden is hosting a White House state dinner with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, the first that Biden has held as president. Today, the two leaders stressed the importance and the strength of their country's partnership, particularly as Russia wages war against Ukraine and aims to undermine democracy. The two promised to stand together against Putin's brutality in, quote, the fight for freedom. Now, the reason President Macron is at the White House engaging in this type of diplomacy is because he won a free and fair election this spring against his country's far-right leader, Marine Le Pen. This was the second time Macron beat Le Pen, who ran on weakening France's ties to the EU and NATO, severely limiting immigration, and banning hijabs worn in public. Le Pen ran as the head of a party founded by her father, who has engaged in anti-Semitism for decades until 2015. When his comments became so untenable that his own daughter, Marine, was forced to expel him from the party. But since assuming the party leadership, Marine Le Pen has ultimately failed to steer the party away from the bigotry deployed by her father. Macron defeated Le Pen in April by about 17 points, which sounds like a lot, but was a smaller margin than in the 2017 election. And her party picked up enough seats in French Parliament this year to deny Macron's party the majority. 
So despite fending off far-right political forces of bigotry at the ballot box, both Macron and President Biden are currently wrestling with the after-effects of an emboldened far-right that has the potential to erode democracy. And indeed, we saw the poison of an emboldened far-right just this afternoon, while Biden and Macron were publicly affirming their relationship, when Kanye West, a longtime friend of former President Donald Trump, who has recently gone on several anti-Semitic diatribes on mainstream media platforms, when, when Kanye West appeared on Alex Jones's InfoWars livestream. Now, that's Kanye right there, who goes by yay now, wearing a mask. For context, West has become a sort of object of fascination on the right while expressing some of the most toxic and bigoted rhetoric you have heard from the mouth of a person who still attempts to engage in society. At this point, Kanye West has been doing it for years, and Trump world invited him in, quite literally. Just months after Kanye West claimed on TMZ that slavery was a choice and reportedly proclaimed his love for Hitler and Nazis in an unaired part of that TMZ interview, Donald Trump invited Kanye West to the Oval Office. One of the moves that I love that liberals tried to do the liberal would try to control a black person through the concept of racism because they know that we are very proud, emotional people. So when I said I like Trump to like someone that's liberal, they'll say, oh, but he's racist. You think racism can control me? Oh, that don't stop me. Yes, Mr. I am open. Like to speak at one of your rallies. He can speak for me anytime he wants. He's been <laughs> a great guy. He's a smart cookie. Smart. He gets it. He gets it. That is what Trump said of a black celebrity who, in the very same conversation, claimed that the concept of racism is meant to control black people. He can speak for me. He's the guy who gets it. Kanye West, who it must be said, has a mental health condition, has become sort of an avatar of Trumpism since then. He's become a sort of right-wing media darling. When Fox News' Tucker Carlson interviewed Kanye West in October, West made several anti-Semitic remarks that Carlson never aired. Knowing what he left on the cutting room floor, this is how Tucker Carlson introduced his interview with Kanye West. Days ago, during Fashion Week in Paris, West, accompanied by his friend Candace Owens, unveiled a T-shirt that read simply, White Lives Matter. The response from the fashion industry and international media was instantaneous and uniform. Shock, horror, rage. The enemies of his ideas dismissed West, as they have for years, as mentally ill. Too crazy to take seriously. Look away. Ignore him. He's a mental patient. There's nothing to see here. But is West crazy? You can judge for yourself as you watch what we're about to show you. Fast forward to November and guess who's coming to dinner at Mar-a-Lago just in time for Thanksgiving? Kanye West and white nationalist Nick Fuentes, who sat down for a meal with the former president. And that dinner was not just a social call. It was an activist meeting for Trump to bring him closer to the base of his party. Trump reportedly asked Fuentes for his take on Trump's speech announcing his 2024 presidential bid. Fuentes criticized Trump for being too scripted. Fuentes went on to reportedly tell Trump that Fuentes represented a side of the base that was disappointed with Trump's speech. And Trump at one point said of Fuentes, quote, I really like this guy. He gets me, according to reports. That dinner, with the bigotry of Fuentes and West as a centerpiece, recently put Republicans in a difficult position. A contingency of Republican leaders, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, spoke out against it when asked recently. First, let me just say that there is no 
room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. And yet, when Mitch McConnell made those remarks, this tweet was still up on the House Judiciary Republicans' Twitter page. Kanye, Elon, Trump. It was posted on October 6th, the day of West's interview with Tucker Carlson. And today, nearly two months later, after Kanye West made a new spate of anti-Semitic remarks on Infowars with Alec Jones, House Judiciary Republicans finally, finally got around to removing that tweet. Appearing with Nick Fuentes, West again professed his love of Hitler and Nazis. He said he sees, quote, good things about Hitler. And he claimed that every person has, quote, something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. More Republicans came out to disavow Kanye West today, including the Republican Jewish Coalition and House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who called the remarks, quote, unbelievable. But aside from disavowing Fuentes and West as people, it is unclear which parts of the white supremacist ideology Republicans are rejecting beyond the direct embrace of Hitler. And this elevation of characters like Fuentes and West by the presumed Republican frontrunner for the presidency, it comes at a very perilous moment when this country is grappling with white nationalist extremism and domestic terrorism. In the past month, we have seen advisories and reports from the Department of Homeland Security and the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, raising concerns about the threat of domestic terrorism, predominantly from white supremacist anti-government extremists, threats specifically targeting Jewish, migrant, and LGBTQ communities. We are fighting against a real problem here, the root rot of bigotry and anti-Semitism and racism that has infected the base of one of the two major political parties in this country. Can it be uprooted? And if so, how? Joining us now is Ibrahim X. Kendi, professor and founding director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Dr. Kendi, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show, especially at this, this critical and deeply distressing moment in American culture and politics. I, when, you, when you hear the comments by Kanye West, when you see the sort of frothing over him, the, the elevation of someone like Nick Fuentes, I have to ask you, is that how hate spreads? Is, is this the mechanism by which the poison of racism and anti-Semitism infects a society? It is, it is Alex, and, and, and in my work, I try to talk about the producers of bigoted ideas or racist ideas or anti-Semitic ideas and the consumers. And typically, these producers of ideas have massive platforms, uh, like, a, like a Kanye West or Donald Trump. And they produce and mass spread these ideas and, and people who trust them or think highly of them consume them, not knowing that they're consuming hate. And they repeat them and continue circulating them. So that's precisely how 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 these ideas spread like a virus. Why? Why? I mean, I, I, I guess I'm asking a sort of theoretical question, but it has a practical application. Why? Why does it spread? What is it? about the hate that is so embraceable by certain parts of uh, our society? Well, I think two major reasons, if not many, uh, that, that I want to highlight. Uh, first is typically bigoted ideas are simple. 
they explain complicated phenomena. So like the idea, for instance, that black people are dangerous, which is a racist idea, explains why black people are disproportionately incarcerated or even being killed by police. And, and so they're, they're, they're simple and they explain these complicated phenomena. And, and then typically they reinforce the beliefs that people already have. And, and people typically imagine that people have more because they are more. People typically generalize individual negativities with particular groups, particularly Jewish people and, 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 and people of color and, and women and, 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 and gay people. So it sort of reinforces what people already think. I guess I wonder when you look at the way, when you look at the response from within the Republican Party in a moment like this, how, how, first of all, how satisfied are you with the, the sort of disavowals from leadership like Kevin McCarthy and what more needs to be done? Well, I just see it as a political calculation in which Democrats consistently during this past election uh, characterized Republican uh, pol politicians as, as extremists. And I see Republicans now trying to, in a way, sort of distance themselves from from extremism uh, wrapped in a Nick Fuentes and, and, and that extremism, of course, being white supremacy. But white supremacists support voter suppression and Republicans generally do too. White supremacists support, uh, anti-immigrant, uh, rhetoric and, and policies and, and Republicans do too. White supremacists support, uh, rolling back reproductive health and so do Republicans. So on down the line, when you actually look at the policies that white supremacists are advancing and the policies that Republicans are advancing, they're pretty much one in the same. Yeah, and well, and then there's the stark reality that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar are going to be reassigned committee seats after having said things like comparing President Biden to Hitler. I mean, these are people who speak at white nationalist events. So it seems nearly impossible to eradicate the virus of white supremacy from the Republican Party when, as you point out, the policy itself mirrors that of a white supremacist policy. And the interlocutors here are themselves white supremacists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. Um, do you I mean, how how then to proceed in a two party system where one party is infected with a poison that could kill democracy itself? Well, well, I think first and foremost, many people are, are attracted to, to, to bigoted ideas, to, to white supremacy, uh, to, to forms of anti-Semitism because of the ways in which they're hurting, because of the ways in which they've been misled into believe government isn't working for them or the elected officials aren't working for them. And so as you try to create more equity and justice for all people, and as you create a more robust and truthful educational system, then, then people feel less, less of a need. But I also think it's important, particularly for white Americans who are largely the target of these Republican elected officials and certainly white supremacists, to know that one of the oldest white supremacist talking points is that white people are the true victims. Uh, is that diversity and multiculturalism and anti-racism are anti-white. That's a white supremacist talking point. And unfortunately, because white people and people of color and people in general aren't learning about the history of racism and white supremacy, they don't know when they're being hoodwinked. 
I, you know, and I, I mean, I think when you talk about learning the history and you focus on education as a way of combating this, how 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 depressing. I mean, we look at the fight that is happening over education and the discussion of race in the classrooms and the way in which we teach our history here in this country. And that is in, is being litigated and in, in many ways poisoned by a right wing that's intent on bringing in Christian nationalism to the classroom. What what is the rest of the country to do in this situation? Well, well, ultimately, I, I think when we look at the core of of this issue, it's really an issue about power and, and policy. And and there you have white supremacists and, and even Republicans who are using uh, bigoted ideas to gain power so they can institute policy that, that benefits people like them. And so really, we, we can't be distracted uh, by these bigoted ideas, by racist ideas. Toni Morrison oftentimes talked about racism as a distraction because so many people are distracted and they need to figure out and see the true source of their harm, which is not people who don't look like them. It's typically oftentimes people who they're voting for, who've taught them that they are their saviors when we need to look around and see our neighbors as our saviors. Uh, our neighbors are our saviors. We're all in it together. Ibrahim X. Kendi, it is such a joy and an honor to have you on the show I, I, and to have your words of wisdom in a moment where I feel like a lot of us feel quite lost. Professor and founding director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Dr. Kendi, thanks so much for your time tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me. Still ahead tonight, <clears throat> leaks for the Supreme Court have many people concerned, including members of Congress who want answers and they want accountability. Judiciary Committee member Senator Sheldon Whitehouse joins me to discuss. And tomorrow is the last day of early voting in the state of Georgia ahead of next Tuesday's Senate runoff election. And there is no, no shortage of scandal facing Republican Herschel Walker as Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock brings out the closer in the final days of the race. That's next. Stay with us. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. When I was seven. 
Then I grew up. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf. Which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. Except for a United States Senator. That was President Obama stumping for Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock tonight down in Atlanta. With the special election just five days away, over one million Georgians have already voted early. Now, while Senator Warnock has enlisted arguably the biggest star in the Democratic Party as his closer, Herschel Walker has tapped former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I shouldn't laugh. Mike Pompeo was a former Secretary of State, but even Mike Pompeo appears to be a tough booking for the Walker campaign. The former Secretary of State canceled his appearance with Walker at the last minute, citing a family issue. Walker is also facing yet another damning allegation of physical assault from an ex-partner. There are just five days left until this runoff election. And despite the apparent and pretty clear asymmetry on display here, both candidates still have a lot of work to do in terms of mobilization. But if Herschel Walker is losing the support of his own party's elected officials and can't book Mike Pompeo, he may want to rethink his closing argument. We'll be right back. This summer, Politico published a bombshell piece about Rob Shank, a former evangelical leader who orchestrated a multi-million dollar scheme to wine, dine, and entertain conservative Supreme Court justices in an effort to push an anti-abortion agenda. A $30 million plan to lobby the justices with hunting trips and luxurious vacations and expensive meals. A plan that worked. A few weeks ago, Shank told the New York Times that he was tipped off in advance to the Supreme Court's landmark 2014 Hobby Lobby decision by a wealthy couple he personally recruited to get close to Justice Alito and his wife. The implication here is that Justice Alito himself, or his wife, offered the information to the couple, something Alito now denies. And yes, that leak is problematic. But so is the shameless and shockingly successful maneuver to buy access to Supreme Court justices. But all of this is reaffirming something we've known for quite some time. The Supreme Court has a massive accountability problem. Politico, The New York Times, and others have just put it on full display. In light of these reports, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Congressman Hank Johnson sent a letter to Chief Justice Roberts demanding answers and asking for formal inquiries. And tonight, the House Judiciary Committee announced that it will be holding a hearing next week to investigate this conservative lobbying campaign, which may very well have led to the leaks of two landmark rulings. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, chair of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Federal Courts, Oversight, Agency Action, and Federal Rights. Senator, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. We've been covering this story repeatedly because I find it totally outrageous. You are calling for a more formal sort of infrastructure to oversee the court ethically. Is that even possible? Yeah, it is. And the court could... Uh do it itself. And if they don't, then uh, Chairman Johnson and I have uh, proposed a piece of legislation that would bake in some of the essential uh, ethics and recusal and transparency requirements that we need. This is a kind of triple whammy of a problem for the court. The first is the leak of the Hobby Lobby decision ahead of time to Mr. Schenck. However, he got it. He clearly knew in advance the outcome of that decision. 
Second is the campaign behind it. $30 million spent to wine and dine and influence justices, which the court doesn't seem to be a problem, see, see to be a problem at all. And then the third piece is the court's apparent complete inability to exercise any juris, uh, authority to look at itself. And um, that is probably the ultimate problem that they simply don't have a process or procedure for looking at their own ethics problems. I think it would it shocks most people when you tell them that Supreme Court justices are not obligated to include expensive gifts or meals or vacations or to specify items of personal hospitality in their financial disclosures. How is that possible? Well, it's obviously wrong and it's obviously completely different from the way the executive branch officials who have to report gifts and hospitality and legislative branch officials who have to report gifts and hospitality and even lower court judicial officials who have to report the same all behave. And it seems that the trick that they pull at the Supreme Court is to say that if they got a personal invitation, then it's personal hospitality. Even if they have no personal relationship with the person who's doing the inviting. So we've discovered, for instance, that Justice Scalia took around 80 hunting trips, uh, paid for almost entirely by others, and didn't disclose any of them because when they set up the trips, they'll have the owner of the resort invite Justice Scalia, even if they'd never met, uh, and then pretend that that was personal hospitality as if he was visiting his children or his brother-in-law or going on a you know family trip. It's just shocking given that these people are supposed to be the arbiters of justice and ethics and morality, so much so that very little thought is given to the oversight of their own justice and morality and ethics. We know that the House Judiciary Committee yeah, is going mean, to hold. You build into this, the things, the things that a court looks at in its regular day all the time is, was there independence? Was there a fair process? Was an inquiry made and what was its result? The court can't answer those basic decisions about itself because it has no inquiry. It has no process. It produces no result, And there's no independence. Those are all things that are fatal in the kind of matters that the court ordinarily looks at and that it won't apply those basic standards to itself is incomprehensible. One more question for you. The House Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing next week on this scandal. What of the Senate? We know that the House is about to go into Republican hands. What do you expect from your colleagues in the Senate? Uh, Chairman Durbin has already announced that he intends to look into this at the full committee level. I'm going to defer to him until he decides what he cares to do. But uh, Chairman Johnson and I, in our respective courts subcommittees, have been working in very collegial and very effective uh, bicameral fashion, and we are going to continue. All right. Senator Durbin, we're watching. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you as always for your effort and time. Thanks, Senator. My we'll pleasure. Right. We'll be right back. Part of the official state gift that French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife brought for Jill and Joe Biden today was a vinyl record of the soundtrack for the 1966 French film Un homme et une femme, or in English, A Man and a Woman. It is a love story that President Biden and the First Lady saw on their first date. If you don't remember the film, there is a chance you might remember its signature tune. Lady. 
President Biden's gift to the Macrons included some American vinyl, although we don't have the reporting on what the albums were as yet. But for the record, this whole tradition of world leaders trading vinyl is something we can all really get behind, and not just because it is generally awesome, but because it serves the goal of diplomacy a whole lot better than, say, weirdly endless and subtly hostile handshakes that then turn into endless, totally awkward three-way handshakes before just sort of devolving into nothingness. No one needs to do that again. Ever. Ever. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.